I think of it as effectively being able to burn fat and carbohydrate appropriately. You know, the right fuel at the right time, being able to switch between fuels as appropriate. It's being able to, to have the full range of fuel burning options at your disposal. So that means when you need to really kick into the higher gears, you have that there, you have carbs available. And when you're doing long, easy stuff, you know, you're, not, you're not burning through your carb stores. Hello and welcome to the Long Munch, the nutrition podcast for runners, cyclists and triathletes. I'm Steph Gaskell. And I'm Alan McCubbin. We are both accredited sports dietitians based in Melbourne and combined have over 30 years experience working with runners, cyclists and triathletes to help them stay healthy and optimise their performance from complete beginners through to professional and Olympic athletes. Each week, we take a deep dive into the most common nutrition questions that runners, cyclists and triathletes ask about might be that they're chatting away during their training session or in their um, recovery at the cafe. So uh, what we do is we aim to break it down and we invite a guest expert, usually in part A, and then we follow that up with an athlete or a coach to add their perspective. So that's in part B. So it might be able to provide you with a bit more practical um, advice. So today we're up to episode 46A, what is metabolic flexibility and why should I care? And we're very lucky to be joined by Jeff Rothschild, um, who who's from Auckland University of Technology. What we're going to discuss is, first of all, what does metabolic flexibility actually mean um, and why does it matter? Is it important in all um, exercise scenarios? And how do we know if we ourselves are metabolically flexible or not? And then we'll talk about the factors that impact on metabolic flexibility, so the things that make the most difference and what's fairly insignificant in terms of the whole grand scheme of things. And then what you um, yourselves can change to try and improve your own metabolic flexibility if it's relevant. So before we get stuck into all of that, how are you going, Al? I know we're Monday the 19th of September, which means a lot of parents will know uh, school holidays, at least in Melbourne. Yes, yeah, yeah. So it might not be in other states of Australia, but yes, certainly school holidays here. So I've got kids chattering away in the background. So hopefully that's not coming through in the microphone, but uh, <laughs> we'll see how we go. They get a bit fired up when they're on the computers playing, but um, that's life. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, no, other than that, just um, things will settle down otherwise and just at the stage of getting all those uh, blood samples from those five-hour running studies, um, just about ready to analyse all the samples. So I've been doing all the background work and we're going to organise bits and pieces to come into the lab. So some of that we do ourselves, some of them we send off to external pathology providers to get done because we don't have the equipment for particular types of analysis so yeah Yeah. in that process at the moment which is always good fun Um, and then obviously once we get all that it'll be doing all the stats and then getting all the glorious data and seeing the results Mm. and then writing up a paper so we can all read it yeah and make sense of it (laughs) yes well that's my job I guess is to make sense of it so when readers read it it makes sense, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, how about you, Steph? You're just back. Obviously, you were in Adelaide. You're back in mm. Melbourne now, but you mm. made a quick 
whistle stop mm. tour of Sydney while you're at it. Yeah, it's been a whirlwind, that's for sure. And um, with flight delays and things like that, we were getting back quite late last night. So, uh, yeah, now I'm trying to actually get myself into the work zone while your kids are now getting out of that work zone. Uh, but, no, uh, super fun. Got to, yeah, see family and friends in Adelaide, which was awesome. And then, yeah, in Sydney, got to catch up with Tanya's um, friends. So she was getting me back for making her suffer through meeting all my family and friends. Um, Mm -hmm. But, yeah, I think that all went well. And we were down Bondi Beach, actually, and I was super excited because I thought I might be able to get on to Bondi Rescue. You know that show? Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Not that I actually want to be on there because that means I'm drowning in the water or the shark's gotten me. Or you've Uh, done something illegal. Yeah, yeah. yeah. (laughs) But we we went down there and that that was awesome. So, yeah. But now back back into it, I've got to write those revisions for the papers now and and I've got a whole heap of marking uh, to do. So, yeah, ready, ready for all of that. Fun and games. <laughs> but um, I did actually have my little man, Cooper Cavoodle, being babysat by Isabel Martinez, who's from Monash Uni, and our, she's asked us to talk about her study. So I'll let you explain that one. Yeah, so Isabel's currently doing her PhD at Monash and looking particularly at gut training. So we talked about gut training back in episode 41A, what is gut training and how do I do it? And we mentioned in there that there's kind of some theoretical approaches to gut training, but there's while there is some research in that area, there's not a lot at this stage. So Isabel's obviously going to be expanding on that with her PhD, which is fantastic. So mm. hopefully we'll get a lot more information about, you know, the more effective ways to do gut training and and that sort of thing. So if you are a runner in Melbourne, aged between 18 and 50, and you're interested in doing some research or being involved in some research, particularly around gut training, because that might be something that's useful for you as well in terms of preparation for your own events, then you might like to take part in this research. So I guess the first thing is you do need to be aged between 18 and 50 and based in Melbourne. You, there is multiple visits to the lab involved with this. So, you know, sometimes we have people going, oh, I can fly down from Sydney for the day and do it. It's like, it doesn't work that way because you've got to come back multiple times unless you want to make multiple flights back and forth. It's probably not going to work. Mm-hmm. Uh, in terms of, you know, how, how um, fit do you have to be or how much running is involved, you have to be able to run three hours on the treadmill at 60% of your VO2 max, which generally speaking from previous studies, is about 8 to 10 kilometres an hour on the treadmill. So you're covering about 24 to 30 kilometres in total on any given day that you're doing the trial. And depending on how we don't have all the details of this, but there's usually two, sometimes even three of those runs as part of that trial. The other things is you can't have an already diagnosed gastrointestinal disease or condition, so that would rule people out. Um, but if you meet all of those criteria and you're keen to be involved in some research and find out a bit more about how your gut functions and how it can potentially improve for race day, then you can contact Isabel Martinez. So uh, you can either get in touch with her by email. So Isabel Martinez, I-S-A-B-E-L dot Martinez, M-A-R-T-I-N-E-Z at monash.edu. Or you can give her a text on 0475 We'll also share this on social media as well so you can get all those details there if you want to. Yeah, awesome. Cool. 
into social media shout outs and questions. Uh, we've, we've got a little bit here, Al. Yeah, on Instagram, we had um, the Compete Academy, who is part of Compete Nutrition. So we had uh, Alicia Edge from Compete on, oh, I can't remember off the top of my head which episode it was. It was earlier this year, yeah. about April yep. or so, um, yeah. looking at nutrition for athletes who are pregnant or breastfeeding. But um, part of her business is not only working with athletes, it's actually providing professional development for sports nutritionists and dietitians so through the Compete Academy. And so she'd send out a bit of a shout out for you, Steph, because you're going to be doing some um, work on exercise-induced gastrointestinal syndrome and FODMAPs for athletes uh, as a bit of a professional development opportunity for practitioners. So if you are a practitioner listening to this, you may like to get involved with that through Compete Academy. Uh, and you're just telling me there, Steph, it was episode 36A that Alicia was our guest on. Yep. Uh, on Twitter, we also had Paul, um, whose uh, Twitter handles also says performance gains sports nutritionist. So he is a sports nutritionist who focuses mainly on ultra endurance exercise over in the UK. And he sent us a really nice tweet, said, thanks, Alan and Steph, for sharing your wisdom and keeping me company over the last 88 hours crewing for Elite ultra runner, ultra demo, Damien Hall, on the Tour de Gion, which actually sounds like a French event, but it is in fact in the Italian Alps and translates basically to Tour of the Giants. 350 kilometre ultra. Uh, I had the long munch on back-to-back -back episodes. And then, Steph, you'll be pleased with this. He said, I really want to visit Adelaide now because it sounds bloody good. You see what, what I'm doing for Tourism SA? <laughs> yep. <laughs> yep, you should uh, get them to sponsor the podcast. Yeah. Should should do. <laughs> yeah. So thanks so much for that, Paul. Um, I hope you, you found the uh, podcast useful and it kept you awake over those 88 hours of crewing. <laughs> yeah. And Steph, when you're over in Adelaide, I mean, obviously you're spending most of your time with family. Mm. Did you uh, get to catch up with people who are listeners of the podcast as well? I did. Uh, Olivia warns Al, who we both know, sports dietitian mm. in Adelaide, uh, and she's actually really interested in the outcomes of your study. So she was asking me about that one. So um, I let her know to, to stay tuned um, to the results of that. And then actually in Sydney, um, meeting Tanya's friends, then of course I've got to plug it to the Sydney siders. So yeah, gave, <laughs> gave, <laughs> gave a mention there, a few, um, meetings with, with her friends. So hopefully they'll start to listen. Um, yep. but that's, yeah, that's about it for now. Yep. Awesome. So just a reminder, you can find us on social media at the Long Munch on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. So if you've got a question that you've like answered um, or even if you've got a friend that keeps bothering you about a particular question, uh, please shoot, shoot that in to us. Today's episode hour, we are both really excited about. I'll let you introduce this one. Yep. So today's episode is episode 46A, what is metabolic flexibility and why should I care with our special guest, Jeff Rothschild. So Jeff is a registered dietitian and certified sports dietitian. He is currently completing his PhD at the Auckland University of Technology. And the reason why we wanted Jeff on to talk about this is he's done some really interesting data analysis, looking at the different factors that impact on carbohydrate versus fat use during exercise as an energy source. 
And obviously, as we go through this interview, you'll see why that's relevant to our conversation around metabolic flexibility and this term. One thing I just want to add before we get into the interview, we talk a lot about um, RER or respiratory exchange ratio throughout the interview. And I think Jeff explains it very briefly at one stage, but just to make it clear for people before we get into it, this is a measure of basically the ratio of uh, oxygen intake and carbon dioxide output when you're breathing during exercise. And so when you um, go in and do it like a VO2 max test or any of those tests where you're wearing the mask and it's measuring your oxygen consumption, that's the VO2. But the carbon dioxide that comes out, the volume, is the VCO2. And the respiratory exchange ratio is the ratio between these two things. And the, the reason that this is significant is that when we produce energy from fat or carbohydrate or a combination of the two, the ratio between oxygen coming in and carbon dioxide coming out is different. And so with a respiratory exchange ratio of 0.7, that's generally considered 100% fat use in terms of an energy source. And at a respiratory exchange ratio of 1.0, that's 100% carbohydrate use. Now you can get an RER above that, and that's where you're going into more of that uh, anaerobic energy production as well. So um, not just through what we call oxidation or oxidative phosphorylation, you're now going into producing energy without oxygen over and above that value, but you generally speaking, you're considered 100% carbohydrate use from an RER of one and above. So a higher RER value, more of your energy is coming from carbohydrate and a lower RER value, more of your energy is coming from fat as a proportion. Now, respiratory exchange ratio is not perfect. It doesn't take into account, for example, protein use, uh, or if someone's in ketosis, ketone use as well. There's a few little caveats around that, but in most situations for most people, most of the time, is a pretty good indicator of what's going on. And certainly when we do research, a good indication of you know those differences between fat versus carbohydrate use during exercise. Yep, yeah, well explained. Awesome, uh, let's get stuck into this one. Yeah, let's do it. Jeff Rothschild, welcome to the long munch. Well, thank you, I appreciate it. Been a fan for a while, so I'm happy to chat with you guys. Awesome. Hopefully you stay, stay a fan. Um, <laughs> so you're currently doing your PhD at the University of Auckland in um, New Zealand. Um, but from the accent, clearly you're not from New Zealand originally. So um, where was home for you growing up and, and how did you come to be in New Zealand? Yeah, yeah. I grew up in uh, in the U.S. in Buffalo, New York, and then I lived in Los Angeles for about twenty years <clears throat> before moving here. And really, just you know, at, um, I have been a registered dietitian, primarily focused on sports and, and working with people in a private practice setting for about um, I think seven or eight years. And and I had done my master's degree previously, and I'd stayed, of course, interested in research and, and involved in research to 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 some degree. But I really felt like I wanted to do a PhD, and I looked at different programs and, and, you know, different places. And this seemed like a really good fit, both with the supervisors and the lab. And, and of course, uh, New Zealand seemed like a really cool place to live. So here we are. Here you are. Yep. And um, what's the topic of your PhD specifically? And um, yeah, where are you in the process now? Yeah, it's focused on pre-exercise nutrition. Um, and and more specifically the the beliefs and practices of endurance athletes and I'm I'm 
kind of at the tail end now. I've finished all the studies that I'm going to do, and I'm just really starting the the writing process. So you know, hopefully, um, you know, around the, the end of the year or, or early in next year, um, I should be able to turn it in. Yeah, awesome. Um, and what's um, any plans for kind of what's then to to come next post PhD? Yeah, uh, not not sure exactly yet, um, but I do see myself in a role where I can sit at, you know, I suppose the crossroads of, of nutrition and physiology, which is what my PhD is, is technically in, and data science, which is, you know, we'll probably get into that, but that's it's kind of a something I've used as part of the PhD, and, and it's it's a really, um, I think there's a lot of potential to do some, some cool things at, at that crossroads between nutrition, physiology, and, and data science. So I guess if anyone's listening, I'm, I'm certainly opening open to learning more about any potential options yes. uh, as well. Me too, by the way. <laughs> We're both in that phase. <laughs> um, maybe we can do something together. Um, and um, just out of interest as well, um, what's your, I'm sure you've got a particular kind of sporting background. What's your sporting background? Um, yeah. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time being very into tennis, um, also cycling and triathlon. Um I would say I'm very mediocre, but I do have a sense of what regular training feels like, and, and, and that's certainly been helpful for my research and practice. Yeah, awesome. Um, running as well? Um, I mean, enough. I mean, I had I, I done one Ironman, but I wouldn't, definitely wouldn't consider myself a runner. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, yeah, today we're, we're talking about metabolic flexibility, which we, we'll go into what that is um, in a moment, but you've done some really cool data modeling, which I know Al would love because he's a bit of a data um, nerd. Um, and you've even built some some apps yourself, which is very cool. Um, and they're apps that people can use to take the, the data and use it in the context of their own situation. So I guess, yeah, how did you get into the kind of the data science side of things? Um, because... Yeah, it would be a pretty steep learning curve, I imagine. Yeah, uh, well, I, I don't have the traditional data science background, and in fact, before PH before starting my PhD, I didn't have any data science background. And, and my biggest fear coming into the PhD was not moving my family across the world to a place I'd never even visited before, or starting a PhD at, at age forty one. But I was literally terrified of being forced to learn R, which is a, a programming language, um, which is silly because you certainly can do a PhD without that. But a few months in. I needed to, to use it for one small thing, and, and I've used it just about literally every day since then. And what got me really hooked was seeing how powerful these tools could be in the context of applied sports nutrition and physiology. And I, I remember feeling like I could answer some really interesting and really cool questions if only I had access to a data scientist like 24-7. So about two years ago, I doubled down on learning data science and really made it a top priority. And, and it was super slow at first, but I've stayed consistent with it. And I'll, you know, there's certainly infinitely more for me to learn, but I do feel like I'm at the point where you know, the data science can be a creative tool rather than a stumbling block, which is nice. And, and it's allowed me to take on some pretty interesting and unique projects that we'll probably talk about. Mm. And did you have to sort of go away and do a course for that or was it sort of self-taught? So, uh, self-taught. I mean, I, I took courses, you know, online courses and things, but it was, there was no formal, like I didn't go to, you know, mm. anything. It was more like just tutorials and and again some paid courses but things that are just kind of on your own and and just just completely just 
on the side, just consistently chipping away at it. And, you know, the lockdowns helped to a degree because, <laughs> you know, forced out of the lab. And But I, I think I would have done that anyway. This was kind of started before those, before COVID uh, really anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And um, just out of interest as well, when in your private practice, um, what were, was there particular um, sports and athletes that you um, worked with? Yeah, mostly endurance sports. So cyclists, triathletes, mostly um, some tennis players as well, just owing to my background, I think. But um, yeah, l- largely cyclists, triathletes and runners. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. Um, so getting into um, metabolic flexibility, um, which is often a term that we can hear kind of thrown a- around a bit, sometimes it's used quite well. Um, but often it can be used perhaps um, out of context. So can you tell us and our listeners what um, metabolic flexibility actually means and maybe how it should be used? Yeah, yeah, no, it is a, a good question. Um, I mean, to, to, I think of it as effectively being able to burn fat and carbohydrate appropriately and, and what that appropriate would mean, you know, the right fuel at the right time, being able to switch between fuels as again appropriate maybe that's not the best word but i mean i think it captures for instance after a meal you know we want to switch to be able to burn carbohydrates effectively um or i guess if it's a high fat meal we should be able to burn burn our fat um if we've been exercising for a long time and depending on the intensity and and all these other factors which i think we'll get into um but but in short it's it's being able to to have the 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 full range of of fuel burning options um at your disposal and um, you see on, on social media at times that people can interpret metabolic flexibility to mean being less of a carb burner and more of a, a fat burner, and then they perhaps advocate low-carb, high-fat diets to get more fat adapted. Um, do you think that this is a misinterpretation of what metabolic flexibility is actually all about? Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly just one side of the coin. Now, I think the reason that is is kind of the we hear about that so often is because many people, not everyone, but many people, let's say, are, are very carb reliant and, and they're not very good at burning fat. And so this is then the the focus on it for a lot of people, and then that's how that gets supposed propagated. But um, you know, there's certainly people I've seen in in, in practice that um, are, are very good fat burners and very bad carb burners. And so you know, um, yeah, it's it's. Um, there's, there's two sides to the coin. Yeah, yep, yep. And any other com- kind of common myths or misconception that you've seen or, or heard about metabolic flexibility or the use of carb versus fat during exercise? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I suppose the thing that comes up a lot, and maybe we'll get more into this when we talk about one of the papers, is, is, is like needing to stay fasted during exercise in order to burn fat. And you can, you can certainly can still burn a lot of fat while still taking in carbs particularly as exercise duration extends. Yeah, 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 that's a big one. Um, and if someone isn't sure if they are metabolically flexible or not, um, then um, how can they actually find find that stuff out? Yeah, I, I suppose the easiest way, um, and it's usually just maybe a, a couple hundred dollars, would be like lab testing. So if, if you live near somewhere that does that or, or university that has the equipment, you can go in and, and do generally a, a graded exercise test. And that gives you a, a sense of, of, you know, are, are you burning fat in the lower intensities? Are you burning carbs appropriately in the higher intensities? And, and you know, it's, it's maybe not 
perfect, but it's it gives someone a, a good sense of, of where they're at. And when someone does a test like that, Jeff, I guess what are you looking for to make that distinction? I mean, obviously, if someone's very sort of carbohydrate reliant, you'll probably see that pretty easily in that, you know, they're using predominantly carbohydrate even at really low intensities of exercise and it just gets higher from there. Yeah. I guess the flip side to that is maybe the harder one to figure out. So if you've got someone, for example, who's been following a keto diet for a couple of years or something and they're very well fat adapted, but not very good at using carbohydrate. What do you tend to see on a test when, when you get someone like that? We might see an RER that never gets up to one, 1.0. Mm. And so maybe that's jumping ahead. Um, but, but briefly, like one of the, the thing that the respiratory exchange ratio. So lot, I'm sure a lot of people have be familiar with that, but that's, it's a measure of essentially, uh, you know, our, our carbon fat use. Mm. <clears throat> and when that gets to 1.0, it's, it's generally thought to be hundred percent carbohydrate reliance. Um, and so some people I've seen that they just can't get there. They're, they're mm. fatigued and it's clear that they're, they've kind of hit their max and they might be at, you know, close to one, but, but not hitting one. Whereas mm. normally people can get up to, you know, 1.2, 1.3. And mm. so, so surpass 1.0, usually around that second ventilatory threshold. Um, and so when there's kind of a mismatch between the RPE and that where you'd expect to see like the, the four millimolar lactate, if you're measuring lactate or, or that second ventilatory threshold, and, and they're still like, well below one, um, that that's a pretty good indicator. Mm, yep. What I've seen as well, I'm not sure if, if you've um, seen this also, is that I find that those guys often, like when they finish, so they're exhausted, so they have to stop. But you look at their heart rate and you're like, I would have expected you could go quite a bit further. Mm. Like I would have thought you could, your max heart rate would be 10, 15 beats higher than what it actually was on the test. Mm. Yeah, interesting. I, I, I Totally possible. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And I guess it's just, again, because you can't tap into that carbohydrate use to keep pushing all the way to where your actual maximum heart rate probably is. Yeah. So they fatigue yeah. early and have to stop. Yeah. 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 Um, and so I guess you mentioned that, you know, we can go in and do that in the lab environment um, where it's nice and controlled. Is there any way that um, athletes could do this without going into the lab so I guess you know kind of in the field is there a way to to have a look at what type of um fuels they're burning yeah I mean I I suppose um I'm not sure how, how great of a test it would be but if if there's there's some people that can do a, a long easy fasted ride or run and it's it's not too big of a deal like a couple hours at an easy intensity and it's and and, and I, I suppose if someone could do that you could be have a pretty good idea that you know they're they're probably reasonably reasonable fat burner. And if someone just bonks after like 45 minutes, even at an easy intensity, that's probably a good, a good indicator that they, they probably don't have a good fat burning capacity, yeah. not super, you know, technical of a test, but, but, um, in, in the extremes, it would be, I guess, informative. Yeah. And I guess the flip side to that around the carbohydrate use might be more that sort of trying to do max effort type stuff. Mm. Yeah, and if exactly. you're struggling to sort of get those max efforts up to where you feel you should be able to, maybe you're struggling with carbohydrate use yeah yeah okay so i guess when we think about metabolic flexibility we can sort of understand what the term means and i guess people have different ideas in their head of is it important is it not important why is it important when is it important all these kind of things but what are kind of the what is the theoretical benefit for having good metabolic flexibility if you're a runner a cyclist or a triathlete yeah i mean i suppose health is is maybe the one of the top reasons um you know a, a quote unquote, healthy body should be able to effectively 
switch between fuel sources. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if, if we're thinking about more of the, you know, the, the running cycling performance, um, it's using fat, using your fat stores again as appropriate and carb stores when appropriate. So that means when you need to really, you know, kick into the higher gears, you have that there you have carbs available. Mm-hmm. And when you're doing long, easy stuff, um, you know, you're not, you're not burning through your carb stores. So there's probably, um, certain durations of events or certain types of things that, 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 you know, that would lend itself to, to seeing a difference in, in that case. Um, whereas again, like something really short, it w- wouldn't matter if someone is flexible or not, if so- something super long, it wouldn't matter, but you know, there's probably some, some, some distances where, where it might make a important difference. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And I guess that was going to be my next question is sort of are those benefits universal across all type of events? So I guess you can maybe if you use those two extremes as an example. So we've got the really short stuff like, you know, 10 kilometer running or half marathon or something or, you know, a criterium in cycling or sprint distance triathlon. I guess for there, probably the ability to tap into fat wouldn't be necessarily particularly important. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Um, and, and and at the other extreme, maybe the ability to tap into carbohydrate if you're doing, you know, 200 miler or Ultraman or something where the overall intensity is fairly low, but it's just, you know, 20 plus hours, again, less important. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I would agree with that. Um, but, you know, I, I suppose um, flex, the, the flexibility is, is I, I think it's maybe the thing that's overlooked that I should have mentioned a few few minutes ago is it's really a byproduct of being well-trained. So if you're, if you're well-trained, that that's the top priority. I do work with a guy who, who was a winner of race across America, extreme, extremely elite endurance athlete, he's won multiple, you know, endurance, ultra endurance events, but his, his lactate, mm-hmm. he could barely get it above four, you know, that, that was a max effort. So, um, but he was, he could still burn carbohydrates. So, so that actually there's a distinction between anaerobic, you know, glycolysis and, and aerobic metabolism of carbohydrates and fat. So someone who's really, let's say, tuned for ultra endurance can still be good at burning fat and carbohydrate, but have a less robust anaerobic system compared to, let's say, a track cyclist or, or a sprinter that can get their lactate, max lactate up to like 20. Um, so that's an, uh, kind of a, an additional, uh, maybe underappreciated part of this discussion. You know, when we think about carbs and fat burning, there's also kind of the ability to, to create lactate and, and, and um, yeah, burn carbohydrate that way. Mm. And I guess some of that is not only the ability to produce lactate, but in some cases, people are very good at using that lactate. So it doesn't yeah. accumulate yeah. in the blood and you don't get that high value as well. So yeah. And I mean, you've got different people have different sort of combinations of muscle fiber types and all that kind of stuff that goes into it. So it's a, a pretty exactly. complicated kind of situation. Um, do you feel that there's certain events or situations where there might actually be benefits to being metabolically inflexible? So, for example, those shorter, high-intensity events, is there an advantage to being almost a pure carbohydrate burner, so to speak? Yeah, I, I think in theory, but I, uh, again, I think being well-trained sorts a lot of that out. Yeah. Um, and when we, when we look at, from from what I read and, and seen for our, like the Breaking 2 projects, um, you know, that one of the goals is to try to shift them to more carbohydrate burning by just feeding more often and, and feeding as much as they can. And so um, that is goes to what you're saying. And th- there might be a theoretical benefit, but um, again, I think just the, the, the well-trained status, just a lot of that is going to take care of it. 
Mm, yeah, and we'll, we'll get into that shortly in terms of the research that you've done. And I know um, there's a paper from our lab that's not, nowhere near in as much detail as what you've done, but um, has kind of looked at this a little bit as well and, and suggests that, you know, we can kind of try and get clever and manipulate a lot of this stuff. But as you said, the training will kind of just dwarf those effects in the yeah. end. Yeah. Okay. So we mentioned earlier um, that you've done that really cool data modeling as, as part of your PhD project. And I guess the first thing that caught my attention when I had a look at that was the study where you took data from over 400 other studies and almost three and a half thousand individual data points. And then you did a whole bunch of analysis, as you said, using that sort of data science skill set to look at what are the factors that influence carbohydrate versus fat use during exercise. I guess the first question is, you know, what prompted you to do that kind of a study? Yeah. Um, basically, you know, I was curious. Um, it, it's pretty, no, no one's going to argue that certain things increase your reliance on carbohydrate during exercise and, and certain things decrease or shift you more towards fat. So for example, generally speaking, as exercise intensity goes up, we rely more on carbohydrate. If we consume carbohydrates, we're going to shift reliance more on carbohydrate. As the exercise duration extends, we generally shift reliance more towards fat, so the RER would go down. Um, as glycogen goes down, we would our RER would go down. So it's all these things that are on their own not very controversial. But but what I was curious then is what happens when you move multiple levers at the same time. So what what if you the intensity goes up as the duration extends, or or you know um, you you've, the duration extends, but you're feeding carbohydrate, or you know and these are simple examples, but you can imagine if there's more than one lever that's moving at the same time, well, what happens? Um, and there's different ways that you could get to that answer, or at least try to, to try to get an answer. And, and one of the ways that I took was, um, like I said, I extracted this data, um, I, yeah, literally an Excel sheet with 3,500 plus rows in it, um, <laughs> that were all kind of manually extracted. So, um, yeah, you, you'd have to be a full-time PhD student to, to kind of even think about undertaking something like that. And actually, it was kind of based off a, a smaller, similar thing I did with AMPK um, activation um, prior to this, which kind of got me on the idea. But basically, taking you know all, all these data data points and, and kind of seeing, okay, what, what's the RER value? What's the exercise duration, uh, intensity, the person, the you know the subject's VO two max? What, how much carbs did they eat during exercise? How much did they uh, eat in the four hours beforehand? What was their twenty four hour carb intake the day before the twenty four hour fat intake? All basically all these factors that we kind of generally think about in terms of, you know, I want to adjust, I want to be a better fat burner, carb burner. Here are the things that I'm going to, the main levers. And I tried to figure out one, like I said, what, what matters when you pull multiple levers at the same time, what's more important, like what are the most important things? Um, and, and yeah, kind of how they interact. Mm. And I guess to be able to tease all that apart, you need a lot of data to do that. Yeah. Yeah, yep. exactly. Yeah. Okay. And how did you go about getting out? three and a half thousand individual data points uh, slow slowly one at a time no <laughs> i mean um yeah i mean honestly like it was a, a very comprehensive like search pubmed search that i think started with like eight thousand response results and i just went through like i don't know three or four hundred per day for like three weeks or something mm. and then kind of made a list of the ones and then kind of yeah, just, I mean, it was a several months process probably. Um, and you know, the, the thing is the first, like, I don't know, hundred hours of work I put on this project, I didn't know if it was going to amount to anything or if it would result mm -hmm. in anything, you know, this was really an exploration of like, it was my curiosity to figure out like, well, what, you know, what's, what's affecting RER and, and, um, let me start by just getting a few data points and kind of seeing, and then I kind of just, you know, get my curiosity and, and 
thought, okay, this is a thing. So, and then I had to kind of do it properly and, and thoroughly and make sure you have very specific inclusion criteria, um, yep. you know, things like that. Mm. And obviously you then go through and we'll, we'll skip over all the, uh, the hardcore data science part of it, but then obviously you got your findings out from there. What were the main things that you sort of took away from that once you've crunched all the data? Yeah, I, I guess the, the big ones were um, that things like exercise duration and intensity and age and sex and fitness level and glycogen and, and daily dietary intake together, all those things that someone might ex expect to explain most of the variation in our yard during exercise actually only explained about 60% of it. Mm -hmm. So that indicates, you know, a large influence of additional factors that, that you know, we can guess as to what those are but like basically there's, there's a lot of things that 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 are are not under our, our strict control a few other kind of highlights i think for were um the daily dietary intake so your your daily carbohydrate and fat intake um has a larger influence on rer than like what you're taking in during exercise for example so many people are so focused on like oh i'm not gonna have sports drink on my two-hour ride because i want to you know burn fat and then they end up like bonking you know or i've seen so many people just you know kind of on group rides and things that don't are, are just so uh, afraid to take sports drink, for example, two and a half, three or four hour ride, um, because I don't know why. And and then it's really, that has such a minimal effect on your fat oxidation compared to, like I said, your, your daily dietary intake. And the biggest relative determinants, like so, um, are, would be sex and exercise duration. So basically, if you exercise long enough, you can eat whatever you want, and you're going to be burning fat. Um, mm -hmm. And pre-exercise carbohydrate intake also matters, and, and your daily fat intake is a, a really main main one um, as well. Um, but like the things that are really easily modified, so the things we think about exercise and intensity and duration, and and what we have before and during exercise, those together account for such a small part of it that um, you know th those are the things that are easy for people to kind of wrap their head around. But um, gosh, there's so many more things that are that are affecting it. Yeah. Okay. And were there any like was there any aspects of that that I guess really surprised you that you sort of had expected this, but then when you got the data, you're like, oh, actually, it's this. Um, I suppose the the large importance of the daily fat intake. So you're, you're like in kind of in, in grams per kilogram, how much you're you're typically daily, in. and it shouldn't be so surprising. But I, I just thought some of those other things would be more important, but that that was a, a really important uh, factor, and also that I, I expected those things that we think about explain like the pre-exercise carbon take and the during exercise carbon take and the intensity duration to explain, I thought it would explain way more of the RER variation than, than it really does. So the, almost the biggest surprising thing was that like it's those easily modified factors explain like so little of it, like maybe 30% of the variation. People have this traditional view of what's going to influence carb versus fat use. Do you think that these findings kind of challenge that a bit and, and particularly i guess looking at sort of the long-term dietary stuff versus the short-term mm. stuff well yeah and, and when i say long term even just in a couple of days beforehand um but uh, yeah i suppose um it's it's um it's inconvenient because let's say a coach or an athlete says oh we're going to work on your fat burning today and and like and try to adjust it from the i mean the training will will have the effect right but but like to try to say okay you shouldn't have carbs during you know before exercise you like you have to do this fasted it's just not going to be that big of a deal compared to all those other, other things that are going to have a bigger influence. Now, fasted versus fed exercise does affect your carb burning. That That's very clear. Um, but for example, like um, 
yeah, the, the during exercise intake is, is one that again, people like on these long rides, I used to just remember seeing like shaking my head, people like are bonking by the end because they, but they're just like so resistant to like having a sports drink. Mm -hmm. Yep. So in that case, you can almost go into a session fasted and then it doesn't matter whether you have the sports drink during or not. It's not going to make that much difference. Yeah. yeah actually that I think is a really underutilized strategy. If, if you want to burn fat and we could maybe talk about even if you want, like, I, I think there's actually too much importance placed on this. Um, so this paper was, it was really about understanding the, the factors. Now that's it, whether you not, you should care about this or, or it should care about as much as people tend to care about it. Uh, I'm not so sure actually, but, um, regardless, I, I wanted to kind of understand the, the, how the levers moved, but for someone that let's say does care about it. Yeah. That that's super, um, underutilized start out fasted and then have, you can have sports drinks and gels all you want, and you'll still get a high fat burning rate. Also, um, some of my other research, um, like if you have showed, if you have protein beforehand, that won't really affect your fat burning rate too much. So you, and, and you guys, I think have shown similar, um, and, uh, oh, and, uh, you know, people that do low glycogen. So if, if you, if you do like a sleep low session, um, meaning you do a high intensity training at night and then you don't eat too much carbs overnight and then do a, another session in the morning, most people would do that fasted and, and avoid carbs during it. But if you go into that, you could have a meal right beforehand, a, a normal meal, but your glycogen is still going to be low. You'll still be burning a ton of fat. Um, mm. you could also, and, or have carbs during that workout, you're still going to again be burning a ton of fat. So, um, I think there's some, you don't have to like completely drain yourself, um, the way people maybe think they do in order to get these, uh, fat burning, uh, fat burning happening. Yep. Yep. And I guess in that case, that might protect you a little bit of against like the faster training, as you said, where someone then bonks halfway through, you can sort of exactly. do the faster training, avoid bonking by still having the carbs during, but still get the benefit of the, the fat utilization during the session. Exactly. Time. And, and avoiding this giant within day energy deficit, which is, again, is another thing that I, I think is super important. That's underappreciated and people that wake up and do a fast session. And if they're reasonably fit or exercising for a, a reasonable amount of time, they could be burning a thousand or 1500 calories, you know, before they've eaten breakfast. So they're just digging themselves a huge hole, um, mm. you know, before the day even starts. Yep. And, um, also one thing that people might wonder as well is, so when you go in, fasted um and if they then were just to consume kind of like um fat during the session that doesn't actually increase their ability to burn fat either right. does it right yeah there's no real need to do that that's more just like uh, so sometimes some of these drinks have a little bit of fat in them I guess the the, arc, the best argument I can see for that is just to get some calorie replacement. So again, you don't have such a huge deficit if yeah. someone's burning 900 calories an hour, they're reasonably fit, even at a low, you know, a, a really fit athlete at, at a low zone two kind of intensity could still be burning eight, 900 calories an hour. And so by putting some, some fat in the drink, I suppose, um, you know, that, that seems reasonable, but not from, it, it, yeah, it's not going to increase your fat burning per se, but it might just be a, a way to get calories without kind of if you don't want the carbs yeah yeah cool um we spoke to dr sam impey actually back in episode 2a of the podcast around that concept that that he and james morton came up with the glycogen threshold hypothesis and we sort of asked them i oh know it was fuel for the work required we asked him who came up with the term and he said it's debatable <laughs> so <laughs> that's all right um but i guess that concept with that glycogen threshold hypothesis 
that they had at that time, which is probably about five years ago now, is that essentially the amount of glycogen that you had in your muscles, so the stored carbohydrate at the end of exercise, was the important factor in determining the body the body's adaptation to training and then the ability to you know, improve the use of fat over time versus carbohydrate for future training sessions. Do you think what you've found with, with your modeling, do you think that kind of supports that hypothesis or suggests that maybe it's one part of a bigger picture or do you think it suggests that actually that hypothesis might not be quite right? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Sam and, and the work he's done and the work he continues to do. Um, and I, I think, I don't think anything's really in disagreement with that. Um, I, like I mentioned, I, I did a similar modeling paper looking at AMPK activation. And that also, that found an importance of ending but not starting glycogen. And so that kind of speaks to the same thing as, as the RER paper in that, and, and to their paper, um, where it, it's where you end. It doesn't matter where you start. So, and, and so um, obviously if you're doing a short workout, that isn't that hard. If you start super high, you're gonna end kind of high in terms of your glycogen. You, you want to have enough carbs in the system to end at, at kind of that sweet spot. That's maybe, let's say, a, a third a third of a tank of gas. Um, yep. Yeah. Yep. Okay. And just because you mentioned AMPK a couple of times, can you just explain for listeners what that is and, and what the significance of that is? AMP, activated protein kinase. It's it's basically, um, it, it's like an energy sensor in our cells. So it's it's one of the things that causes some of the favorable endurance training adaptations. So if, we, if, if that gets activated downstream, some of the things like mitochondrial biogenesis and, and kind of the, the things we want when we're endurance training, um, it's not solely uh, due to AMPK activation, but AMPK certainly plays a role in the signaling. So generally speaking, it, it, we want AMPK activated as part of our endurance training. Um, and so, like I said, I, I have a similar paper um, trying to figure out, again, these these different factors and how it influences it. it that also started as does, pre, does pre-exercise nutrition screw up your, your signaling. Some people avoid, you know, do faster training because, um, you know, they think it's going to inhibit or impair some of the signaling from exercise. Um, and, and the short answer there is um, it doesn't affect AMPK signaling. Again, that's not the only important signaling, but basically that, that ending glycogen is, is important, more important than like if you've eaten or not beforehand. Okay. And as Steph mentioned before, you've created an app that's freely available online. Anyone can go and, and have a look at it that allows people to basically put in their own kind of circumstances uh, in terms of, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, the things that are in it, um, age, sex, um, exercise duration, exercise intensity, there's a couple other things. Um, and basically from that, it kind of predicts your carbohydrate versus fat use. So it doesn't say you're going to burn this many grams per hour, but it says, you know, it's going to be roughly, you know, 80% carbohydrate, 20% fat or vice versa, you know, whatever sort of combination that it is there for any combination of sort of duration, intensity and other factors that you put in there. How, I mean, obviously you put that app together, so you spend a lot of time working on it. What's what's the intended use for that app that you see? Is it something that you see researchers using? Is it something you see athletes going on and using themselves? How do you suggest people use it and kind of interpret the information that comes out of it? Yeah, I, th- I think, um, honestly, like entertainment. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I say that partly jokingly, you know, because um, one of the things from, from you know, we have, th- let's say, 3,500 data points, but the prediction accuracy is still not very good. Um mm despite that. And so also on the app, um, there, there's, there's space for body weight, but not age or sex, because that's not something someone can control. Yeah. So I really focused on the modifiable things. Mm-hmm. Um, 
so body weight, and that's only to adjust your daily carbohydrate intake and fat intake relative to the grams per kilogram. Yep. And it's exercise duration, intensity, and carbs before exercise and carbs during exercise. So there's, you know, th those on their own are not super predictive. Um, and that, that did use a machine learning model. So it's actually a bit of a, a better model, less um, interpretable, but, but better than the ones used in the paper. So yeah, it'll give you a good idea of, of kind of the relative influence of things, but it's it's somewhat accurate, but it's not super accurate just because like I said, that these factors can't make, it can't be accurate with just these factors. Um, there's so many other things that, that affect our, our fat, you know, fat and carb uh, oxidation that we haven't even touched on, um, but that are just, you know, related to your enzymes, stuff inside your muscle, hormones, and environmental conditions. I mean, there's just so many things. So it's really meant to kind of, I think it's still useful. And, and, but again, kind of more of a, out of interest to say, okay, well, if I have this much fat and this much carbs in my daily diet, and I'm exercising for this long, what happens if I, if I take 30 grams of carbs an hour? Well, it's probably not going to affect that much, for example. So yeah. it, it can kind of, you can kind of just see what's maybe mo the, the relative importance of things. Yeah. Okay. So it's what's going to give you bang for buck if you are trying to manipulate things and what's probably not worth worrying about. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And you mentioned just before, like there's all these other things that are going on sort of inside the muscle and hormones and things. And obviously that's kind of in that large proportion of variants that we still can't sort of explain. But in terms of your thoughts around that, do you get a sense of how much you think that is sort of trainable stuff that would change over time just with, months or years of training versus stuff that maybe is genetic and there's literally nothing you can do about. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I don't, I mean, I, I, I couldn't quantify it. Um, certainly some of the things will, will train. I mean, well, some of the things, yeah, affected by diet, affected by training. So things like your fat transporters, um, you know, the things that the, the machinery inside the, the enzymes and, and transporters inside the muscles. Um, and there's actually a, a couple of cool papers I'm working on now that, that aren't, we're still analyzing things, but looking at kind of the different transporters and, and kind of how they, um, well, which ones are important and, and, and kind of the different, um, you can imagine there's different um, bottlenecks potentially for where the fat oxidation is limited. And so kind of mm. just exploring that a little bit more. Um, yeah. So that, that'll be cool to share when that's out. But um, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. Um, diet is probably the thing that, that certainly can affect it the most. So if you go on a low carb diet or high fat diet for a few days, I mean, you'll see that you could totally crank up your fat oxidation, but not that doesn't mean you should do it. Um, so yeah. Uh, mm, yep. And, and also coming at the expense of reducing your carbohydrate oxidation if you, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, and as you said, it's sort of the two sides of the coin. If you constantly just on one side of the coin, that's what you're going to get. Or if you're on the other side, you get that. Whereas yeah, for that metabolic flexibility, you need to be able to do both regularly. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So I guess, Coming back to this concept of metabolic flexibility, I guess if someone feels that they have poor metabolic flexibility and that they might stand to benefit from improving it, um, given all the stuff that we do know, what's the best way they can go about trying to do that? Are we manipulating training? Are we manipulating nutrition? Are we doing a bit of both? Is one more important than the other, do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's it's a synergy. So if, if someone's a, a poor carb burner, like I had just measured someone in the lab recently, and, and she just was again, like we talked about before, couldn't get that RER up. Um, I think my suggestion to her was, um, you know, around the higher intensity sessions, just make sure you're fueled beforehand or beforehand or during with carbohydrate and that, you know, well, I, don't, I don't know how, how well that will, will affect things, but you know, it'd be interesting to see. Um, 
conversely, if someone's, you know, really carb dependent, then, then doing some maybe fasted, easy, um, easy sessions and, and, and building up the, the time slowly. Um, there's also an, uh, you know, something we haven't touched on, but fasted training. I mean, it's, it's pretty clear that, um, it'll increase your, your ability to burn fat in the fasted state. But, but when people are, um, given food like standardized breakfast, it's, it's, it's not so clear. So, um, you know, that that's the, the testing status is, is really important, um, for, I guess, determining this, um, and, and also the relevance. So if, if you want to be a better fat burner during your races, but you're not racing in the fastest state, um, whether fat fasted training has much of an effect is um, still an open question. There was actually a really cool study I was doing as part of my PhD, but it got kind of cut when, when we had our second COVID lockdown and, and I, I just kind of had to pause it, um, hoping to answer some of these questions. But um, yeah, so I, I suppose doing some of this, you know, fasted or, 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 or slightly lower carb diet when you're, if you feel like you need to increase your fat burning and cranking up some carbs before and during exercise, if you need to, to, to increase your carb burning. Mm. And do you think, I mean, from what we've discussed about kind of that big effect that training has relative to those sort of acute factors manipulating it just around or during training, do you think for people that maybe are lacking metabolic flexibility, is it simply that they just don't train enough? As in, as long as they're training long enough, like, you know, your Ironman guys doing your five or six hour ride on the weekend, they're going to get there anyway, regardless. Yeah, I, I definitely don't think it's it's needed. Um, and also, you know, actually one, one of the, my earlier studies in my PhD, we, we did an acute session of, of, you know, basically a one hour session interval, interval training and, um, in, in the fast, fast state or, or with, uh, having a carbohydrate breakfast or a protein breakfast. And, you know, a lot of people avoid fasted training because they think they're going to perform worse, but there's no difference in interval training performance, you know, regardless of, of if people had eaten or not. Um, and, and so to me that, that tells me that, um, you know, if, if you want to eat, like you don't have to eat before a hard workout also at the same time you, you certainly can if we're talking about a short workout like an hour or less a lot of times people assume that if they're doing a hard workout they need to eat beforehand um but it you know if it's only an hour like a lot of people will do short interval workouts that that to me i i don't see that as any problem at all mm -hmm. um, but again if they want to eat um or before every session that's also fine yeah yeah and so i guess it's really those longer sessions where that beforehand is going to become more important sort of two exactly. hour plus type sessions exactly yeah yeah and with that sort of metabolic flexibility so someone decides that they're not very metabolically flexible and we talked before about you know why that might be like they bonk really easily they can't go for really long sort of moderate intensity type sessions so they go away and they try to implement some of these things that we've talked about um you know they maybe reduce down their carbohydrate in training day to day a little bit maybe they do um, sort of deliberately underfuel a little bit going into a couple of sessions a week, something like that. In terms of how they can tell whether their metabolic flexibility is improving without going back into the lab and, and necessarily measuring everything under the same conditions again, is it just again like you're just less susceptible to bonking or you seem to be able to go further without that being an issue, do you think? Yeah, I, th I think that's probably a, a practically practical and reasonable way to think about it. Um, you know, you're, you're, you may be if you do an early morning trainer session, uh, you know, without just fasted and used to get off and just be ravenously hungry. And, and then now you can wait, you know, 15, 20 minutes without, you know, eating your whole refrigerator. Um, you know, maybe that, that could be an indicator. I do remember, uh, there was a, a really, uh, study from Javier Gonzalez in the UK. Well, increased liver glycogen use was, was related to increased hunger. So if, if you're fasted training, 
and you're burning through more of your liver glycogen, let's say more carb reliant, you're going to increase your hunger, which is you know not super surprising when you think about it. But um, that that was, from what I recall, very clear to to show that like your hunger, you know, later after the workouts could be a good gauge. So if you're very fat reliant, if you're you know for, if you do a, a a one hour easy spin on your bike on the trainer, let's say in the morning fasted, and you're burning mostly fat. Um, you know, you, you shouldn't be super, super hungry later. Um, mm-hmm. But if you've ripped through all of your carbs and your liver glycogen is basically depleted, that that's, you know, that's going to drive up your hunger. Uh, yeah. Probably later yep. in the morning. Okay. And I guess for those who might potentially benefit, and we said, again, that's probably more a theoretical one than, um, you know, good evidence for this. But if someone is in those sort of shorter, very high intensity events and they want to really improve their use of carbohydrate, in terms of how they would go about that, I guess, well, they can have, you know, carbs before, during the session, but really it's probably going to have to be more sort of over days where they need to sort of up their carbohydrate intake rather than just saying, I'm going to have a high carb breakfast and have lots of carbs during my session is probably not going to have that much impact. Exactly. A a lower fat, higher carb diet will will do that probably within a few days. Yeah. Yep. Okay, cool. That'll that'll make sense. Just to um, check and confirm. Say if an athlete was wanting to do a bit of that training lower stuff, so say they had a session on Tuesday and they do like a, you know, a, a couple of sessions in the day and they're lower carb, um, so their end glycogen levels at the end of that day is, is low and then they've got a session in the morning. If they do have breakfast, they feel like they need to have something before they do that session. Is that going to hinder their ability to burn fat? So, so, sorry, so in the context of low glycogen? Yeah. Yeah, um, not, not too much. I mean, pr- probably compared to had they not had breakfast, but it'll still be lower than, yeah. you know, the RER will still be lower than, than if they had high glycogen. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Cool. Yep. But also the, the, the closer to the workout, um, the less that'll impact it too. So if you had... Um, bowl of oats or whatever an hour 90, 90 minutes before compared to 15 or 20 minutes before there's actually a big difference there too yeah so if someone wants to to have it maybe the smartest thing to do would be have it you know some toast or whatever like just before as long as you're you yeah know, not, that's you know, what i'm up. thinking yeah yep yep yeah. yep cool. well steph you can take us away with our bonus round to finish off with yeah awesome um so just for our listeners to get to know a little bit of um, fun stuff about you, apart from being a data nerd with Al, um, <laughs> it's very good to be a data nerd. I wish I, I would um, have that skill. Um, <laughs> if you had to go back to the end of high school and choose a completely different career path, uh, what would you choose and um it can't be audio engineering because ours seen online that you've worked in the music industry prior to becoming a, a sports dietitian. So um, what do you think you choose? Well, well, good find there. I thought that was far enough in my past that, that not that I'm ashamed <laughs> by any stretch, but I, I, I wasn't expecting that. But um, yeah, I suppose, um, yeah, my, my, my 20s basically were spent, you know, in the music industry. Um, and had you asked me that, question at, at age 30, I would have said, oh, I'd, I'd go back and become a, a sports dietitian. And so I kind of did that. And then um, I suppose asking me now, or, you know, after, let's say 10 years or so of being a dietitian, um, 
I probably would say, oh, I would, I would go back to maybe something more in like data science, which is kind of, you know, what, what I'm, the, the interest I'm pursuing, not, not that I plan on, you know, yeah, doing something totally different, but like using it. Um, I, I guess my feeling is if I would have done something different after high school, there's no reason not to do it now, you know? Mm. Yeah. 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 Yeah, exactly. And, and actually, um, that was the, the sorry to cut you off. But I guess that was the reason I went back to do to do the PhD. One of the reasons because I thought after about six or seven years of, of being a dietitian, and, and after I'd finished my master's degree, I thought oh, I should have done a PhD. You know, and I, I looked at these practitioners that and researcher practitioners that I really admired, um, and and I thought oh, I, I should have just done a PhD after that. And then I realized like, well, okay, well I I, I should have done it then, but you know. You know, like they say, what, what, when's the best time to plant a tree was 20 years ago and the, the second best time is now. So, mm. um, yeah, if there's no reason I couldn't do it. And, and I suppose I could say, well, I wish I had learned more about data science. Um, but that's why I just started to start, decided to start learning it. Yeah. 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 You're doing it now. Yeah. Um, and what's the best thing about living in New Zealand? Uh, I suppose all those beaches right by our house and, and, and really it's an, it's an amazing place for my young kids to grow up. I have a almost two and an almost five-year-old um, and it's just so kid-friendly and it's, it's just such a great atmosphere for them. Yeah. So not missing the U.S. too much? Not at the moment. <laughs> not at the moment. Yeah. Um, and what's a, a sport you've always wanted to try, but you haven't yet had the chance? Oh gosh, I don't, I don't know. Um, I guess a pass. Uh, if I could do, if I was capable of doing anything like pole vault, pole vault would seem really oh. cool. Though I, I don't think I'm sure I could try it if I really wanted to, but I don't, I don't think I'd be capable. <laughs> and um, a favorite sporting moment for you in 2022 so far? Oh gosh, between those two young kids and a PhD, I, I, I haven't followed too much, but I, I think um, for me, seeing, seeing Rafael Nadal just continue to keep winning after so many years is, is amazing. Um, yeah. You know, he obviously didn't win the U S open, but he's, he's still like the thing with him was when he was younger, everyone said, Oh, the way he plays, there's no, there was no, there's no chance of him having a long career because he was so physical yeah. and, and it's just, it's just such a, uh, it's just such a joy to watch. Yeah, he still does. Mm. How old is he now? Uh, Mid 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 thirties, late thirties. I actually don't even know, but um, he's been winning for an awfully long time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And do you live by any piece of advice or particular kind of motto? Um, yeah, I suppose um, the thing that has always kind of stuck with me over twenty years ago, as I was getting my first real job in in music, which was essentially just getting coffee and cleaning, but it was in one of the best recording studios in the world. I can vividly remember being told um, sometimes there's a choice between doing things the right way and the easy way. And this place was founded on always doing things the right way. And that kind of sh shocked me and stuck with me. Um, so yeah, that that's. Yeah. Yep. Definitely yeah. did things the right way in terms of by well, the looks of it, in terms of your PhD. And <laughs> well, I, I, I appreciate it. And even as recently as a few weeks ago, I, I found myself needing to, to redo like literally a week's worth of work to fix something so small that I, I, nobody would have noticed and it wouldn't have changed my results, but like, you. you know, just a accuracy matters. And, and so like, like literally a whole week of just going back over and rerunning analysis, but, um, you know, that's what you do. Yeah. 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 Awesome. Oh, well, thank you so much for your time, Jeff. It's been really fascinating to hear, I guess, about metabolic flexibility. And I guess maybe 
for some people, busting some myths about, you know, what effects some of these different factors are going to have on, you know, carbohydrate versus fat use during exercise, what matters and, and when it actually matters. And, and I guess what can you do about it that is going to give you a bit more bang for your buck. And also the fact that, you know, there's still a lot that we don't know about all of this, that it's not as black and white as maybe people think it is looking on social media and, and reading blogs and going on YouTube and all that kind of thing. So thanks so much for your time and uh, good luck with the last part of your PhD. Well, my pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. That was great. Thank you very much, Jeff. Uh, really well explained, I think, for some of us that aren't so much into the data. You did a good job at, at explaining some of those technical bits. So I'll hand it over to Al to just give a, a summary about metabolic flexibility. Mm. Yep. So our topic today was what is metabolic flexibility and why should I care? So obviously the first part of that, what is metabolic flexibility? Well, as Jeff said, it's really the ability to use both carbohydrate and fat as a fuel source during exercise, and particularly the ability to switch between using those two as required to optimize performance as well. So I guess what we're talking about there is at fairly low to moderate exercise intensities, we're primarily using fat as a fuel and that sort of moderate, but particularly high intensities of exercise we're increasingly be able to use carbohydrate as a fuel source as well. So we're not just stuck with one or the other. I guess the second part, you know, why should I care? Well, if we're too dependent on carbohydrate, as Jeff said, what tends to happen is we go out for a long, slow ride or run or something like that. Uh, if we don't have enough carbohydrate or we're not fueling adequately for that, it's very easy to bonk on those rides uh, and just run out of you know, carbohydrate because we're using it up too quickly. If we're too fat dependent, on the other hand, what you tend to see is you can go long and slow all day long, but then if you really want to get into those sort of high gears and really push the pace, then it might be a bit of a struggle in those kind of situations. And I've certainly had uh, athletes that I've worked with in the past that have said, well, yeah, I know we went, you know, went too far in that direction. You know, we did a low carb, high fat diet for a long time and, you know, I could ride from Melbourne to Portsea and back. For those of you who live in Melbourne, you'll know that's about 180 k's or so, um, fairly flat road most of the way in their triathlon training, long ride, and absolutely fine. But then I got into a bunch ride where they started to push the pace and I just got completely left behind and dropped on those rides because I couldn't maintain that, you know, sort of high, high intensity sort of efforts. So I guess when is this kind of stuff relevant? Well, I've probably sort of given away a little bit of this already, but particularly for those short high intensity type events things like 10k running half marathon sprint distance triathlon track cycling criterium racing on the bike theoretically those events you could be 100 percent reliant on carbohydrate and get through those fine you could certainly fuel adequately for all of those types of events and there is a potential theoretical benefit as jeff explained and uh, something that the the two-hour marathon guys kind of looked at is the fact that you need less oxygen for the same amount of energy produced from carbohydrate. So if we can push the body closer to 100% carbohydrate use, theoretically we need less oxygen to produce the same level of effort in those events. But there really hasn't been much research to confirm whether that would actually play out in the real world or not. I guess if you are then on the other end of the spectrum, you know, sort of ultra distance events, you know, 15 hours plus, and there's no sort of really high intensity parts involved in that because you know, the, the nature of the event, you just don't have sort of sprints or, you know, big hills where you really got to push yourself towards, you know, max heart rate or anything like that. You know, you could probably go fine with that using, you know, pretty close to 100% fat as a fuel source. Uh, but if you start to have hard efforts in there, that might start to come unstuck a little bit. And then you've got 
you know, probably what the majority of listeners would do is, you know, events are between something like three hours and 12 hours of duration and possibly with high intensity efforts mixed in there as well. And this is where metabolic flexibility is going to be super important. And so things like road cycling, um, trail running when you have big climbs involved, something like an Ironman 70.3 or even for the elite guys, you know, the full Ironman distance, that metabolic flexibility is going to be really important for those kinds of events. So how do we know if someone is metabolically flexible or not? Ultimately, if we want to measure that, we have to go into a lab, stick a mask on and do that kind of testing. And we should see, you know, mostly fat use at low intensities of exercise. But then as the intensity ramps up in, say, a VO2 max test, we're able to switch to using carbohydrate and use that effectively at those sort of higher intensities. Uh, I guess what we're trying to, or what metabolic inflexibility might look like is you start off at an easy pace and you're predominantly using carbohydrate even at those um, low intensities. Or if you're too reliant on fat and you can't tap into carbohydrate, the opposite. So you're using heaps of fat at the start, but you just can't get your heart rate up close to max or your theoretical max. And you terminate the, the test fairly early or at a fairly low respiratory exchange ratio, as Jeff said. So if you don't have access to lab testing, I guess the telltale signs would probably be if you're doing long slow fasted rides and you're constantly bonking then you may lack metabolic flexibility or on the flip side to that if you can go all day as i said before with that triathlete i mentioned but you're finding it hard to produce those short hard efforts then that might indicate metabolic inflexibility in the other direction so how can we go about improving metabolic flexibility well i guess the thing that really came out of jeff's research is that the long-term effects trump the short-term effects by far and that's both in terms of training and in terms of diet and when i say long-term particularly in terms of diet we're actually not talking about you know really super long-term as jeff mentioned you can see changes in terms of the body's use of fat or carbohydrate within just a few days of changing the amount of those two things in your diet so to improve the ability to use fat as a fuel source I guess the ultimate thing would be to do long training sessions at a sort of low to moderate intensity, you know, and finishing those sessions with a relatively low muscle glycogen. And that fits in with that glycogen threshold hypothesis that we mentioned going back to episode 2A with Dr. Sam Impey. The other thing you can do from a dietary point of view is increase the fat intake and lower the carbohydrate intake, and that may play a role as well. But if you take that to the nth degree and go for something like a low carb, high fat or ketogenic diet, that will certainly be effective at increasing fat oxidation, but at the expense of impairing the ability to use carbohydrate. So that's not metabolic flexibility, it's just going from one extreme to the other. So you're still metabolically inflexible, just the other way around. So if you are someone who's very good at utilizing fat during exercise, but not so good at carbohydrate, you need to simply eat more carbohydrate day to day. That's probably gonna be the, the biggest factor that will impact on things there. And then obviously fueling your training better in terms of you know before and during those training sessions. Now, if you're still struggling with that top end performance, it's maybe simply that you don't train specifically for that type of effort as well, regardless of how metabolically flexible or not you are. So obviously it's still important to train appropriately for high intensity efforts if that's something that's important to you. I guess the factors that you know Jeff showed in his research that make surprisingly little difference and probably busts maybe a few myths that people have or misconceptions around this area, the first one would be faster training. Yes, it does have some impact on the amount of carbohydrate you use during exercise, but it's actually relatively small in the big picture. So the amount of muscle glycogen you have stored 
matters much more. And that will be influenced not only by whether you go out fasted, but also what you're eating the day before and how you've recovered from the previous training session. And then the other one that has probably even less impact is consuming carbs during exercise. And as Jeff said, that might be a strategy that people can do is deliberately go into a session with low muscle glycogen, but you can still consume carbs during the exercise and it won't negatively impact on the, the fat oxidation or the amount of fat that's used during that exercise session. So there are probably a couple of ones that people sort of avoid completely. They go in faster, they just go on water alone or you know electrolytes with no carbs in them. Um, because they think it's necessary to burn more fat. But in fact, those other factors in terms of the muscle glycogen going in, the long-term dietary patterns and you know, duration, particularly in terms of training and finishing those sessions regularly with low glycogen are going to have far more impact. And I think one thing that really came through from what Jeff was saying, and I forgot to mention it before, is that ultimately, if people are training appropriately for the sort of events they're doing, they're generally they're you know, as long as they're not going to extremes in terms of their dietary practices, they're probably going to be inherently metabolically flexible anyway. You know, if you're training for an Ironman and you're doing lots of long rides, you're always going to finish with low glycogen. And so therefore you are going to be reasonably good at using fat, even if you don't follow quote unquote a lower carb or a higher fat diet. And the same with, you know, ultra runners, just the, the volume of training and the duration is going to get those adaptations around fat use. And as long as you're not, you know, blunting the carbohydrate use by completely restricting it from your diet, you, you will be metabolically flexible. I guess where people might be inflexible are people that are fairly new to endurance sport. Uh, and so they haven't built up that kind of training adaptation over a period of time. Or people that are time crunched and tend to spend a lot of their time doing short, high intensity type training sessions. And they don't do the long, slow, lower intensity sessions. That's not part of their training plan. But then they go out there and expect to do, you know, a half Ironman or an Ironman or an Ultra or something like that um, and really struggle with it. That's probably part of the reason why is just they, they don't do that specificity of training, whether it's because they can't from a time point of view or um, they need to look at their training schedule and or training program and and get a different one so hopefully that gives people an idea of what metabolic flexibility is and also what you can do about it mm. yep yep awesome uh and i think yeah one of the important points there as well is that if you're an ultra distance athlete so you know um competing for longer than 15 hours majority of us well many of us not majority but many of us will still have those hard efforts um so it's very likely that you still want to be metabolically flexible and not just one um one situation and often in the ultras you're going up in lots of altitude as well so uh, i think there you're also wanting to be a, you know good at burning your carbs too mm. Cool. So to follow this one up, we'll be on to 46B. So same question, what is metabolic flexibility and why should I care? And Alan, we're joined by someone we've had on the podcast before. Yes, we're joined again by Neil Vanderplug, cyclist, who previously joined us on episode 29A, How Do I Balance Eating for Training Quality and Body Fat Loss? And Steph, that's actually been our most downloaded episode ever um the, the one that we did and then the follow-up one with neil it's it's definitely been the most popular topic we've had by far and i think we said at the time it's probably the most common question that we ever get asked by athletes mm. is how do i balance eating for training quality and body fat loss 
But during that podcast, Neil talked a little bit about some of the work he'd done in his with his nutrition, um, not while I was working with him, but in the years afterwards, really trying to improve his ability to use fat as a fuel source because he suspected he was metabolically inflexible or at least inflexible to the extent that it was holding him back from a cycling performance point of view for some of those longer one-day races that they have on the National Road Series calendar, things like the Melbourne to Warrnambool, Grafton to Inverall and so on. And he actually went on to win that Grafton to Inverall a few years later. So we're going to have a chat to him about those strategies in more detail than we did last time. I guess why he went down that path, the different things he tried, what he felt worked well for him and what didn't, and what sort of outcomes he felt that he got having gone through that process. And uh, so just to wrap things up, a reminder, if you do have a question you'd like answered on the podcast, you can contact us at The Long Munch on Instagram, Facebook or Twitter. And remember also that there's um, more than 40 plus previous questions we've already answered. So if you're new to the podcast, welcome. Uh, you might like to check out the back catalogue to see if there's something there that uh, will be helpful to you. Most podcast apps only actually show the last few episodes, but if you click back, you'll find the rest of them there. Uh, and that's going back to uh, late 2020. If you want to be notified every time a new episode is available, then you can hit the subscribe on the podcast app that you're listening to this on. And if your friends are asking about a particular nutrition issue that they're training or racing and you've heard it on the podcast, you might like to let them know. Otherwise, we will love and leave you until next week and speak to you then. Good. See you, everyone.